Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past, be it the nuanced unpacking of individual stories or tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib Ali welcoming you back for another conversation. And in today's uh, episode, I'm going to be picking brains of one of the emerging voices, or maybe the voice that's already arrived, Alex Pruskin. You know, the name is becoming household in the podcasting world. I used to joke around that this is the Gil Gross era, but I think this is the Gross Gruskin era. So on that <laughs> note, Alex, welcome to the show and let's let's get comfortable here and we'll be, I'll be picking, you know, a lot of your podcasting techniques for a budding podcaster out there and even someone like me, my podcast completes six years, I think, yeah, I think two, two days ago. So I can probably learn a few techniques from you because you are not only prolific, there's a lot of in-depth analysis that goes in your questions and that's something you know, I, I discovered while preparation, I enjoy listening to your view. So welcome to the show once again. Well, thank you very much for having me as a long-time listener, first-time caller. It's great to be here. I will also say in the first two minutes of the show, you have won over my mother, who's going to listen and say, oh my God, Sakib called you an emerging voice, and that's so <laughs> special. And I would be like, yes, Mom, I appreciate it. And so thank you for the early compliments. I appreciate what you're saying. I will put you on the spot right away. This is the question that may define the next 10, eras of ten, uh, 10 years of tennis better eyebrows myself or Gil gross because that's the real competition moving forward it's the battle of the fuzzy caterpillars and so uh, i think you a, have to pick a side no i will it's a tie break yeah. he didn't wear a hat so i mean i don't want to discount his absence so i'll give him the edge he gets <laughs> he passes you with a net cord winner and you know then you guys can hash it out over lunch but yeah it was close but yeah Oh, well, I probably, you know what? I'm not going to hold that against you. I appreciate it. You're right. He's got a better head of hair than I do. So, you know, I got to hide it under the crack racket hat always. Well, I stopped hiding mine 20 years ago when, <laughs> when in my college days, I used to work at a liquor store and losing hair in America as a fresh of the boat student wasn't easy. And someone told me I looked like Agassi once I shaved my head because my cousin <laughs> said, and I hated Agassi, but I took that as the biggest compliment ever. And I said, you know what? Through the hat, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm accepting my balding years. So here, now, here I am. You know, like, now, I, don't... <laughs> I was going to say the microphone is hot. Clearly, we're rolling. I have made a pledge to our Crack Rackets listeners. The moment Daniil Medvedev admits it's time to shave his head and go bald, I said I'll do it with him. I'm like, we can do it together. We'll be tied at the hip because, you know, let's just say we both know how to use a hair comb now. There you go. I mean, that like, <laughs> this is like, you know, this is groundbreaking stuff already. We can pack it up and. And, you know, if, uh, if I get even half your listener, this is a success for this episode. <laughs> so I think I, I listened some of your episodes, uh, the Holger Rune one. I'm not through with the James Blake one. I'm going to finish it later. It's pretty good. And then also the Ben Shelton one. And I can't find Seb Koda. You have to find that link to, send <laughs> okay. link to me. So same questions you ask your guests. I think we all do that in a Q&A. So what's your relationship with tennis? Are you a former college player? I inform the audience here. And what's your equation with the game right now? I always like to say tennis is a binary system in that you can show up to the courts and be like, oh, you're a one. You definitely played growing up. You definitely have some sort of competitive training or you've taken a lesson or two in your day versus the zero where it's like, oh, you hit with your friends. You're just picking up the racket. You're sort of, you know, figuring things out on the fly, not to be a self promoter, but check out the mini break podcast at cracked rackets. Um, 
I would say I'm a one. I definitely grew up with some formal training. You know, if you are on the tennis recruiting train, you'll recognize the star system they use. I think at my peak, I hit three star for like a week. And then they realized I was grade older or older than it said on the website. And so they quickly ripped me back down to a two. Um, I considered playing college tennis. The division three route would have been the way I would have gone. I wasn't good enough to play at a division one school I wanted to attend, but ultimately my parents went to Michigan. My older brother went to Michigan. My whole family went to the University of Michigan. So ultimately, once you get in, if you're from Michigan, it just makes sense to go there. And unfortunately, I was not quite good enough to play for the University of Michigan. That said, they have a club tennis team. And I did play that during my four years. We're five minutes in. So all Crack Rackets listeners know to take a shot. I'm bringing up the fact that we won the 2017 Club Tennis National Championship, a frequent segment on our Crack Rackets shows. And I always say the hubris I earned from that moment winning that championship is why I do what I do today, because it was my senior year. I really wanted to keep tennis in my life going into the professional world. And I had a job lined up that was not in tennis, but you know, I wanted to do something related to the sport. And, you know, I, I don't hate feeding tennis balls. I think anyone who grew up playing tennis at some point, you were teaching tennis as well. It's not the worst thing in the world, but I just didn't want to do that in my spare time. I wanted to talk about the game. It had always brought me joy at various club tennis events. I had always noticed that when myself, my doubles partner and podcast co-founder Max Rothman, whenever we'd talk tennis, we'd always end up with a group of like eight to 12 people just kind of shooting cakes off at one another. And I thought, you know, back in 2017, there were really two podcasts. It was No Challenges Remaining by fellow University of Michigan Wolverine, Ben Rothenberg, spent many nights listening to that show. Um, And then there was the tennis podcast, which I didn't listen to, but obviously became aware of eventually. And so it felt like there was an opening back in 2017. Now things have become a little bit more saturated since, but that was my solution to keep tennis in my life is, hey, let's try recording a podcast. I had a friend who played at Dartmouth and knew how to do the audio, lended us some credibility. And, you know, now five years later, I wake up every morning and I'm like, all right, how much tennis am I going to watch today? It's delightful. No, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So as I always say, I mean, it's become a cliche. You know, I can go multiple ways. I'm at <laughs> Do you guys have rotaries, you know, in where you live? Because in Massachusetts, they do. So this is where uh, this conversation is at. This is what uh, I like. I, I don't think so, no. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's basically a roundabout. So I'm going to take the first exit. Sure. So how, how, big is, uh, how big is the Crack Rackets team? Because, you know, you can't be doing all this by yourself. 478 episodes. It took me like six minutes to scroll down. So talk about, you know, what goes into production, how you go about your subjects and the preparation. So start with the team first. Yeah, well, I'm going to give him another name drop here more than he deserves. But my dear friend Gil Gross calls me the fake editor in chief at Crack Rackets. And he says fake editor in chief because you guys don't do any editing, which there, you know, there's a grain of truth to that in the sense that we keep it a very light operation. When I was joking around with you beforehand, quantity is a quality in itself in the podcasting business. And so we do try to have at least one daily episode for all of our listeners because tennis is such a fluid sport. You know, Monday matters extraordinarily until it's Tuesday. And then Tuesday only matters until it's Wednesday. And then it's quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. So to your point, it does take a team to turn around our content. We've had 
multiple contributors over the years, but the core of our Crack Rackets group, myself, who I'm fortunate enough to get to talk about all of the tennis, it was once 3.30 a.m. Eastern time. I don't know why that detail is important, but just to set the scene for all of you. And it was like a random Thursday in December. And I would, you know, I, I always say I'm an East coaster who lives on West coast time. And I'm just up sitting in our living room, you know, laptop open. And my roommate walks out and he goes, Alex, are you, are you watching tennis? And I was like, yeah, but I just need to make sure I still liked it. And so, you know, I just had to check. And if I'm still watching at 3.30, it means I still like this sport. And so, you know, they're used to my shenanigans. And I'm very fortunate to live with our producer, head of production, whatever title he likes to call himself, the chief technical officer, Daniel Westoff, who I always give a shout out to at the end of every episode. I could not do this without him. His tolerance for my nonsense. Can you imagine hearing my voice, seeing my face, editing it, trying to make it look good all day. And then you walk out of your room and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm like, hey, roommate, what's up? You want to hang out more? And it's like, no, I just heard your voice for eight hours today. I'm good. Um, But he tolerates everything. He is the best technical wizard in the business. We, When Roger Federer retired, I woke up and saw it 8.45 a.m. I text him 8.50, you know, 8.50, hey, we probably have to go live on YouTube. He says, all right, give me until 9.30 and I'll be ready to roll. And to have someone like that, essential. Then there's Dalton Thieneman, who was the brainchild of Crack Rackets, who put forward the money first and foremost to say, hey, let's give this a go. And I think someone who's been in the industry as you have know that's often the hardest part is finding some sort of way to make it feasible so that you can put in the effort that Daniel and I do every day and his trust in both of us has been monumental to everything we've accomplished he said nope I trust your vision you know obviously he has plenty of thoughts on tennis as well but he lets us do our thing and then he's just a wizard with sponsors. I mean, his ability to make sure every sponsor is not only getting value out of what they're offering to our show, but making sure they're all happy, making sure if there's anything additional we can do, just there's never been a time he hasn't picked up his phone. And I think you need to work with someone like that. That's what I've really learned in these five years we've been doing this now, which is crazy to say out loud is, you know, when you're first starting out, you hear cliches from people like you just have to do it. You just have to try it. And the worst thing that happens is someone is going to say no That's Dalton's ethos in life is try it. And the worst case scenario is that it doesn't work, but at least you tried it. And I think that's something we have done best at Crack Rackets is there are many a times, you know, there's a two hour we played FIFA with Taylor Fritz video that will never see the light of day because it was awful. We came (laughs) out of it. We were just like, this did not work, but we tried it. And like from there, you get an interview with Fritz or you do this other things and you know, again, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with both Dalton and Daniel, who I refer to as Westoff, and I appreciate you asking about them because, you know, I'm the pretty face, but they're the ones who really make everything happen. I mean, it's a package deal, right? So yeah. <clears throat> behind the scenes matters. So again, you said, you know, you wanted to work in tennis. And if you don't mind me asking, because I'm a hobbyist, right? I have no shame. I have a day job. I have a family. And before COVID, my goal was to attend like a couple of tournaments with the media credentials and then, you know, call it a hobby. It's, it hasn't happened, but I see you do go sites. So is the, do you see a future in this? I mean, do you want to be working? Is this work? I know it's passion, but you know, most of us will be lucky to call our passion work, but what's the roadmap for you? How long you want to do this? Do we, do we envision a gross Gruskin calling a semifinals at a, 
in a Masters 1000 on a, on a big channel? Is that like a roadmap? I mean, you guys talk about? Yeah, I mean, I would be lying if I said I hadn't brought it up with him. And I always, I'm a visualizer. So I don't know if that's a word. That sounds like an Austin Powers-ism. But I, I like to visualize, yeah. yeah, I like to visualize the things I do. So, uh, you know, date back to 2015, I would be running on the treadmill. And you're like, why are you doing this as a college sophomore? You're hungover. Like, sorry, mom. Um, you know, you're doing all these different things. Like, why are you wasting time staying in shape playing club tennis? That doesn't matter. But I'd be standing on that treadmill being like, yeah, but it's the national final. And it's two all in the, in the set. And you get this incredible get because you've been working out out and you know i think when i did the first podcast i did visualize the idea of well would it be possible you know wouldn't it be hilarious to be a commentator sometime or wouldn't be it be exceptional to call a match and you know that's what i was doing the past three weeks at t2 so certainly what started out as a fun visualization to distract myself from the amount of time i spent on the treadmill um became a reality and so to answer your question, yes, I think this is now what I would like to continue to pursue. I know when I was considering leaving my first job out of college, and I left my job February 1st, 2020. Obviously, the pandemic starts mid-March 2020. Um, talk about a stroke of luck, which is why, again, I don't want to piss off the tennis gods. They were like, hey, make this move. It's going to work for you. Clearly, that was the sign from them. Um, but I was weighing that decision. And I, I worked, I worked for the government in a role. I worked for the congressperson in my area. I'm not going to say who that congressperson is because they had always asked me, just don't use my name in any of your tennis stuff. So I was just like, all right, that's fine. You know, no, they, they won't listen to the show. Don't worry. Well, that's what you think, but I don't know, Sakib, you have a pretty big audience. Don't tell. Yeah. I know congressional <laughs> Democrats are always listening to tennis with an accent. It floats around the, uh, the subcommittee halls. Don't sell yourself short. Um, but I was, you know, it was a quality first job and I was talking to my parents and my mom has always been the biggest believer in me. She's, you know, they're so kind, loving. They're saying, pursue your dreams. You know, my dad's a little bit more reserved as any Jewish father is. And, you know, doctor, lawyer, politics, those are the things that make sense to him. But when he said, you know, he was like, Alex, I think you should probably go do this because we had a couple broadcasting opportunities. If I, if I turn these down, it wasn't going to happen. And so he was like, you know what, go give it a try. This is why we work hard. If it fails, you'll figure it out, but go give it a try. You know, when I knew I had convinced him, I was like, all right, I probably should give this a go. And so again, to, I hope this answered your question. Yeah, we have some, you know, I've gotten to call an NCAA championship. Now I've gotten to call national indoor championships. Our crack rackets team gets to do really cool broadcasting of the sort of futures events and, you know, challenger events, college events that I grew up consuming at all times. And to have those opportunities, it, you know, they say it's not work if you're doing what you love. And I know that's a terrible cliche, but every time at the end of a shift, I laugh. I'm like, like they're going to pay me for that. That's awesome. And I think when you have that feeling, hold on to it for dear life. And so for now, I suppose I'm still in the honeymoon phase. No, I think that's quite an interesting roadmap. So let me compare you straight away with the tennis player, like especially in the U.S. The culture has been, I've talked to a few players. Rajiv Ram is a big mm-hmm. endorsee of, taking the college route rather than going to do the ITF junior and then challenge a tour route. So there's a lot of college tennis in your portfolio. Was that a choice by design or was that an entry point or was that something that came natural? And is there a transition to do more tour events uh, in your larger 
you know, scheme of things. Okay. I know I keep bringing her up. Did you coordinate this with my mother? Because God knows she's asked me that question a healthy amount of times as well. And it's a great question. My love of college tennis starts in the late aughts, early 2010s. And I do want to set the scene, if you'll allow me, for your listeners. Because if you were a tennis fan in that era, it was really hard to find clips of anything. And, you know, subscribe subscription services weren't like they are now where you can get a tennis TV or a tennis channel plus or whatever it is where you live. And you're able to find not just the center court matches, but the outer court matches and anything you're looking for. Just about every challenger now has some sort of live stream available to it. And even the ITF has launched the ITF broadcasting website where those things are available. In 2008, through 2011 when I'm a 13 to 16 year old kid when you're at your highest tennis fandom because you have nothing serious going on in your life none of those options were available and so what you would do is you'd go to YouTube and you'd look for any tennis that would be possible to find and you know for me 13 to 16 years old I still thought maybe I'm going to play college tennis pursue these different things one of the first YouTube pages I found was Zoo Tennis, which of course is Colette Lewis, one of the greats in tennis journalism history, in my opinion. If there's a Mount Rushmore, you have to put her on there because coverage of junior tennis, college tennis, challenger tennis, it she created it. It wouldn't exist without her blueprint. And she used to always throw up the clips of the top American juniors in the world, or you know, she would link to Bobby Knight, who would throw up the best college matches in the world. And those were just the clips that were available to me. And in particular, Virginia men's tennis had every match available, like the five-minute highlights at least of every possible match, VASP.tv slash men's tennis. The amount of times I typed that into my laptop – 13 to 18 years old. I have every video memorized. If you want me to run you through the nine minute Stanford UVA 2011 quarterfinal, I can do it. I did it once for Sanam Singh who played in that match. And he was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, yeah, you get a lot of things. I was like, we're, we're unpacking to, to use your word here, uh, a lot of different things. Um, But that was the tennis that was available and it was extraordinarily exciting. And I think, and I know this is, opening up a couple of different things here, but growing up in the era that I did as a fan, women's tennis aside, because it was the Serena era, although there are a ton of other fun names mixed in, you really picked a camp, right? It was Federer, Nadal, Murray, Djokovic, and, you know, I wanted to veer a little bit differently. I wanted to see who were the young up-and-coming players, who might be those future American stars. And unfortunately, we didn't get a top 20 player out of college tennis during that era. But to this day, 2011 Alex Damajan, a freshman for UVA, I swear to God, walks into the top 100. And it's just like he didn't pursue pro tennis. But it's like there were a bunch of captivating talents. Stevie Johnson winning 72 matches in a row. Samdev Devarman, who was incredible during his two uh four-year run at uva the level of tennis was exciting college tennis was an atmosphere where you were allowed to be partisan you were encouraged to scream at the opposing players and do all the things a 15 year old boy likes to do and so it, it just it brought about excitement and getting into the media i know again i and i appreciate you offering me this platform this is the last time i apologize for talking as long as i am no, it's um, your show we'll yeah, oh, that's kind um 
getting into the tennis media, you're looking for an opening, right? And as a 21-year-old fresh out of college who didn't play college tennis and doesn't have a bona fide credential for why you should listen to my voice, uh, college tennis was the pathway I saw to start. It's that I knew there were at least 10,000 versions of me out there in the country who were starving for some sort of conversation about college tennis, who wanted to hear from a college tennis coach, who wanted to hear from the Ben Shelton's of the world, who wanted to see college tennis treated like college football, college basketball, any other college sport, because college tennis is the one unequivocal team tennis that persists over time. With all due respect to world team tennis, with all due respect to some of the other leagues out there, there's a college tennis season every season. You know, you can root partisanly for a Michigan, for a Virginia, for an Ohio State, et cetera, et cetera, over time. And you can't do that in standard in standard professional tennis. And so I think I gravitated towards that different format. I certainly gravitated towards the level of play. I also gravitated to the opening. It felt like in the in the scheme of the tennis market, this was a niche that was not being talked about. And so to start there and now see players like Ben Shelton slowly ascending into the top 100. I referred to him when I was talking to a friend the other day. I go, oh, he, my friend switched rackets. And I go, oh, my buddy just switched rackets. And he goes, oh, who's your buddy? And I go, uh, Ben Shelton. And it was like, because we just talked about it the day before or like, Will Blumberg, who I consider a dear friend, he's in the top 100 now of doubles to see these guys work their way into the pros. I always say I'm on the same timeline as you. I'm like, all right, you're dipping your toes into pros. I need to do that now and continue to expand because full circle here, college tennis is a niche. Like not everyone is following it. I would love it if they did. They don't right now. And so I do think you need to have a foothold in the pro universe as well. You know, that said, it's nice to I I just felt like because I didn't study journalism reporting in college to be able to start in the college realm and build connections and kind of say, okay, this works for reporting. This doesn't work. This is how you keep a source happy and get him to tell you information. And this is how you burn a source. And he's never going to talk to you again. Um, You know, you go through all of those processes. And now hopefully I know what I'm doing as I transition to the pros. Absolutely. So you dropped a few names like Ben Shelton. Is there anyone else you hit with or warmed up with uh, uh, hit right with, now on the tour? Well, I, I mean, there are a lot of people who <laughs> – there pe- there's a Rolodex of people who know if they have a good result, they're going to get a text from me. And it's just like, hey, man, great match. And one of the things I've learned, and it's a very little thing, but you'd be amazed how few people do that for pros in media who try to keep those connections. And I'm not trying to disparage some of the others because again, I think, I think Ben takes, I think the reason everyone rips on Ben Rothenberg, who's a dear friend has been a mentor to me. I should disclaim is it's platform envy. You're just jealous that you don't have as many followers at him that you think if I was given that opportunity to do what he does, I would be doing it so much better than Ben does, to which I always say, well, then start a podcast like it is 2022. If you think you can do better, prove it. Um, That said, I think that it is very important to still talk to players. I think it's very important to talk to these coaches, to try and be on the grounds of as many events as possible. And obviously that requires a budget, which 
you know, it's a little bit tougher. Uh, it's always nice for us because now there are a bunch of Midwest events, Cincinnati, Cleveland, where I was able to be the MC, and, you know, Chicago has some events now as well. Midland's got an event in November. Uh, it's important for us to still get out on the ground, of course, and be at those places so you can build those connections. Because otherwise, again, like what are, and I'm not to drag you into this socket, but what are our credentials to talk about tennis, right? What makes me an esteemed tennis mind? I like to think I've watched as much tennis as anyone in the world. I like to think I have a pretty decent mind for it. But the way we distinguish ourselves is that we're talking to players, is that we are on the ground. We are asking them questions in post-match press conferences. And so, you know, there's a nice list to answer your question of players who I like to think know they're going to get a message from me. I won't burden them with the names here so that everyone starts texting them. Um, But in particular, you know, if you played college tennis, if you're an American, more likely than not, you're going to see my name pop up on your phone. I always say if I could get this is maybe inappropriate, but if I I'm still a single male, uh, if I could get women's numbers the way I get tennis players numbers, that would not be the case. I'd be I'd be much better off in my personal life. Definitely. I wish you, you know, you appear more on more cell phones yeah. uh, than tennis players <laughs> of your choice. So let's quickly take a digression here. Like you said, you know, who are we? We are fans, right? You know, you're definitely pursuing a career here and and I see you go places. I have my own small uh, podcast, even though you didn't know that I was also doing a podcast in 2017. That's okay. The two big wigs were tennis podcast and, and Ben. I had a small space. but I should have really referred to 2013-14 because that's when I was a freshman on the bus and you have to ride that bus at the worst hours and you're just like, all right, I'll listen to this podcast. But you are correct. Yes. (laughs) You know what I was listening to? I was listening to cricket with an accent. That is my, that's the real truth. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for making (laughs) me feel better. But no, so you, I mean, Gil, I mean, I don't want to put you guys on the spot because you already have a foot in the media. You know the likes of some media people. I do too. But from outsiders who are now insiders or semi-insiders where do you see is clear room for improvement how we follow the sport how commentary is done because fans are very critical but at the same time when you know a mark petchy when you meet a nick lester when you talk to a mark woodford you know like it's not as easy so are there any angles that you have discovered from outside saying oh wow this is i can do this better but the moment you are now floating in the same bus in the same time zone these guys say you know what they're not doing as bad a job so I don't know if there's a question in there, but fire away. What do you feel? Well, improvements that can come in. I, th- I, I do think part one is talking to players more frequently. And you told me before the show, I'm allowed to flip things on you. So I, if I may ask, I know you are frequently, you have Mert on your show, obviously, who's a well tied in coach and he will be able to, uh, dis- you know, he's able to offer perspective on things that I think the common tennis observer just won't be aware of. And so, you know, I have seen a rise and I think this is a good thing. And, you know, I am going to, take some credit here. I like to think this is a trend we started at Cracked Rackets of bringing on the Ben Rothenbergs of the world, the David Keynes of the world, Blair Henley, Nick McCarville. They know, by the way, Blair and Nick have been banned from the Cracked Rackets shows because I'm like, you don't need my platform. You're going on everything else. Like, what am I going to ask you that's new? Um, No, that's obviously a joke I have between them. They're always welcome. But for instance, the glorification of Mycation is one of the greatest things I've seen over time. And I once said this is my opening line to Mike. 
when we did maybe our second interview together. I was like, Mike, do you know how many times in college I was in the shower and I was listening to you? And he was like, Alex, that's too much information, my friend. I was like, no, 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 no. I meant your match was on in the background. And I was listening to your, I was like, I now realize that didn't come out correctly. Um, but I think engaging with tennis personalities has been a really upwards trend in, in tennis podcasting, tennis content. Now, of course, we are sort of all in our own bubbles. Um, that said, just to pick the brains of people who are on the grounds more frequently, it doesn't have to be, I'm just going to use his name, a John McEnroe, just because he's the big ma- name doesn't mean he's the best analyst for any purpose. You know, I, that's where I would start is I think we do a better job of engaging tennis personalities over the past three, four years than maybe we used to do. Would, have you seen that as well? It's, it's a tough one, right? Even on my cricket podcast, like Mac Endo's name comes up with a couple of other cricket superstars. And then Matt Semek, who's my co-host, said Shaq and Barkley are also, because I used to be a big NBA fan in a different lifetime, but now I don't follow <laughs> the sport. So he said there's like, you don't want to use word lazy, but the superstars just show up and the new fandom is looking for more analytics, more information. And Mac Endo was pretty good when I came to US in the 90s. You know, I learned a lot from McIndoe, Ted Robinson, because that time Tennis Channel wasn't a thing. But the moment I was introduced to Tennis Channel in mid-2004 is when I started listening to Lester, Goodall, Koenig, and I could see the preparation was amazing. They could talk like two minutes about Marcus Bagdadis, the stuff that you wouldn't hear on mainstream networks. And McIndoe wouldn't spend, you know, any time talking about, say, a Paolo Lorenzi or a Mikhail Yuzny, you know, Mikhail Yuzny actually was a top 10 player at one point, but bad example. So I think, you know, sooner or later, I think we all try to be rebels with the cause, but then we do realize that ESPN and the BBC and the Sky Sports are giving McEnroe a big prize money because there's some star power. It's a, it's a flawed metric. I'm not endorsing it, but there are a lot of people on my local tennis clubs where I play mostly Indian guys, they still quote McEnroe like gospel. So Johnny Mac said this, Johnny Mac said that. A few times I would just lock horns with them. So look, listen to Lester, listen to other voices. There's like different ways of catching a match and walking away, learning something from it. I'm not saying McEnroe doesn't know tennis, but I think McEnroe is just appealing to the casual white stream fan, you know, who's not a tennis fan in America. McEnroe's popular to people who still call Wimbledon, not Wimbledon, but you know, he's like that guy. He brings in the outsider. You need that. But is he like a Darren Cahill? No, not even close, but I think they both have spots to fill. Everybody knows Cahill is a world-class coach and McIndoe is a star factor attached to him. Can he do better homework? Who am I to say? But, I mean, the Sakib of 2010s didn't learn much from him, but the Sakib of 90s and early 2000s owes a lot to him. Mm-hmm. So I think it's part of evolution. You know, at some point, it's fashionable when you're the new voice to go trash McIndoe and I'll throw a cricket name Gavaskar because a lot of Indians listen here. They do the same things, legend in their own right, but they're not fulfilling or giving the newer audience a lot to learn from when say like a Lindsay Davenport or Chanda Rubin or you know, different voices are giving you. Mark Woodford does great matches in USA for US Open and French Open. He's calling outside codes. And if you listen to a Woodford match, it's like a treat. And I'm saying this because he comes to this podcast four or five times a year besides that, I think there's a reason, you know, I, I like his style and it's not full of data. So this is my next question. How much do you and Gil and the newer voices that are like, you know, covering a lot of ground, how much do you rely, rely on data? And how do you think, can, can good commentary be free of data? What is a perfect marriage there for you? 
Well, I having now gone to the Tennis Channel studio, what a wondrous studio it is in Santa Monica. I think data in particular, I think it's essential moving forward. I think tennis is behind in, in its data more than perhaps any other sport as we look here in 2022. Now, there are numbers available. The problem is, again, okay, you make 73% of your forehands. Are those forehands effective, though, against X opponent who likes to take the ball a little bit early, a little bit on the rise, which is where your forehand sits up every time? It's hard to, you know, there's no metric that quantifies specifically, or at least no publicly available metric. How frequently does the player take the ball on the rise? How frequently does the player hit the ball six feet behind the baseline throughout the midst of baseline rallies? Now, those stats exist, but you have to pay absorbent amount of money to have access to them. And I think there has to be a blend. I think certainly when we do our pod as podcasters, and in particular, this is a staple of every Crack Rackets podcast. Again, why do listeners want to listen to me? It's because I try to provide them a piece of information they may not have had going into the day about that player. And it's sort of full circle here because when I think about some of my frustrations with current tennis media and it's very hard to call out particular names because again any of these people as individuals majority of them are fantastic humans and it's a delight to spend time with them that said I can think of one name in particular right off the bat where I'm like it's very clear you have never watched a player ranked outside the top 50 prior to this event or you have never actually taken the time to follow the developments, the storylines of this player. You're, you know, you didn't look this up. This was a note a producer handed you. And I think that's a problem because, and I'm very much in the honeymoon age. And again, still 27 single don't have much going on other than this tennis. The reason I bring that up is a ladies DMS open B um, to say, I can allow tennis to consume myself. You know, how many Friday nights it's been 7 p.m. And it's like, do I go out or I don't know, there's this really good Savannah Challenger match. And I kind of want to see if Zach Svita's backhand has taken another step as a weapon and how he does against a big server like Chris Eubanks in this moment. You know, that's a choice I make because I, again, I feel like I'm playing on borrowed time. I feel like I have to know who every single player is. I know I'm going to be a part of a show tennis channel is doing the first week of November called second serve, which is going to be an attempt to be the NFL red zone of tennis. So six hours where we're going to jump around a little bit and, you know, go from this match to that match to that match and kind of follow scoreboards more than one match from start to finish as tennis traditionally is. And the reason I think that format has been very difficult to master is there's maybe four people in the world who can do the Djokovic storyline, do the Tsitsipas storyline, do the Sviantec Sabalenka storylines, but then also, you know, world number 54 Emil Rusevori pops up on your screen, or God forbid, world number 82 Anna Blinkova pops up on your screen, and you're like, I got nothing on Blinkova. I think there's a very narrow list of people who can do five minutes on any of them and be like, what do you mean? Or like Anastasia Potapova, former world junior number one who won the title in Istanbul and made that big run on that summer hard court stretch, losing to Conteve, then beating her and then back-to-back month uh, events in July. Like, A, it's a lot to expect someone to have that knowledge. But B, I think you have to have that knowledge if that sort of show is going to work. And so I, I guess that would be, you ask again to go big picture here, what is one of my criticisms would be, I just think 
more people need to watch more matches. Like if you're going to be in this job, you can't just hypothesize about what happened or play the scoreboard. You actually have to watch the tennis if you're going to offer any sort of significant analysis to your fans. And then part B, you know what helps that analysis is when you have numbers to back it up, when you can say, hey, you know, Felix Ogier-Aliassim has made 13 quarterfinals this season. That's more than anyone else in the top 50 on the ATP tour. Or, hey, Andre Rublev may not have been great at the slams, may have left you a little bit to be desired, but 12 quarterfinals this season. He's one of eight players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage this season. You could make the argument statistically he made a jump forward. I think that's the key thing because tennis is such in our, or it's such an arbitrary sport, right? Everyone sees it a little bit differently. And so again, to flip this back on you, I feel like that's where numbers come into play, right? You can't argue a number. A number is what a number is. And if someone, someone's either top 20 in break percentage or they're not, and I've always felt that's been a struggle for tennis is to contextualize numbers, contextualize success. And, you know, for me, I guess, Numbers are meant to confirm what you see with your eyes. That's how I use them in tennis. I'm curious what you think about that philosophy. No, definitely numbers don't, there's no way to hide with numbers, right? And, yeah. and I'm a lot older than you. So I come from the Boris Becker era of watching tennis, you know, grew up in a very different environment where, you know, there was more, uh, we were reading Tennis Magazine, which was a novelty in India mm-hmm. to get one. And then, uh, you know, we didn't have international, you know, brands of rackets, Wilson used to someone who, who's, you know, who can go abroad and get a Wilson racket. So my vantage point is, you know, this is a long road. It's a scenic route, but you're right. I think the way I learned my tennis, there's a room for numbers, but there's also, I, I understand why, you know, a Jim Courier or a, or, or a McIndoe or Navratilova are calling matches. By the way, Jim Courier is, is world-class and Martina is good too. Uh, but yeah, numbers definitely take you to a place because I try to tweet not as heavy, but I try to use numbers. And uh, like my favorite tweet is when Dominic team won the U.S. Open. Before that, he lost a Cincy tournament in at Flushing, and he lost to uh, who, who did he lose to? He lo- lost to one of the Serbs, right? Yeah, I, I, uh, he lost to Lajovic or Krajinovic. I think so. Yeah. So he didn't win a single point on his second serve in that match. Sure. And I tweeted that or something. It, it you know, by my standard, it went viral, and by your standard, it was like usual, you know, tweet. So, no, but I think even in cricket, you know, that's the two sports I follow. I think stats have really creeped in, in a good way. But at the same time, maybe I'll invite you a different, larger conversation with a panel of guests we can talk about because stats won't do justice no matter what I say. I think it's very essential. But I think slowly we are discovering through Jeff Sackman, like, you know, what stats we can talk about. But at the same time, I don't expect Johnny Mack to deliver stats as long as he's prepared to say the name Rusovori and he knows, you know, yeah. there's more tennis in Russia besides Davidenko and Safin and Medvedev, you know, small things. If you, that kind of respect can come through because, you know, uh, tennis, I think, started covering all courts through DirecTV maybe a decade and a half ago. And then it became a thing with the ESPN and Tennis Channel. So the more courts you're going to cover, everybody's going to get their favorite player covered. And then you'll have more voices. And it's not for a McEnrose or, again, that name, we can use that name easy because, you know, he yeah. won't listen to this for sure. No matter how popular <laughs> you are, he won't be listening to this. So the problem is, you know, when we're talking about other players, you have to not only go do their name pronunciation, like Bear Henley would say, you have to learn about their styles. You and me have the only thing in common for guests is Rusavori. I had him, you had him. 
So I think these things matter, right? When you're covering code sure. six on the first day of a major uh, and you're doing Fuchovic versus, you know, Lorenzi or someone, you, you need to know about them because when we walk Djokovic's and the Federer's, it's easy, flawed way. We always look at their vantage point. We are all guilty of, we are taught tennis this way that we look, oh, he's not serving well today. Oh, uh, her backhand is not. We'll, we'll, we'll try our best to give credit to the opponent, but our, our narrative, our center of the conversation will origin from the superstar. Yeah. So I think that habit can stay on the show courts. And I think I've stopped being frustrated because it'll take years for the show court commentators to get educated about that stuff till, you know, till our friend grows get there, you get there, you know, then things will be different. Or even yeah. the, you know, even the, the bagels podcast, all the young voices, you know, they're seeing tennis in a very, very new way. And, and I'm not saying it's the only way or the right way, but it's a very refreshing way uh, to make stats with the old school way of presentation. And there has to be a perfect marriage in there. I think, I don't know if I gave you an answer because I don't no, think there's a definite answer right now. You definitely gave me plenty to work with. I will go as far to say there is a right way. And you mentioned a name there who also belongs on the tennis journalism Mount Rushmore, and it's Jeff Sackman, dear friend of our Cracked Racket shows, who, through again, doesn't get paid. I want to be clear. Does not get paid to provide Tennis Abstract as a service to the tennis community. And I'm not saying people need to be like me and have the whole, you know, a top 50 player, the average hold percentage, 82.3%, the top 50 average break percentage on the men's side, 23.2% for the women, it's 70.8, 35.9. You know, I'm not saying you have to have those numbers off the top of your head. If you are a commentator on a center court, I'm saying the numbers are available to you. And I do wish we did a better job of contextualizing. We say someone's a good returner. Well, you know, there's a number to prove it. Like there are certain thresholds. If you look at the statistics long enough, if you are breaking serve over 20% of the time, you're fine. Like you're not an abhorrent returner. There's stuff to work with there. If you're breaking serve over 30% of the time, you're elite. Now you're Diego Schwartzman. Now you're Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, or Carlos Alcaraz earlier this season was, you know, at 34.3% through the clay court season. The reason I bring that up, that's a percent and a half higher than prime Djokovic and prime Nadal. And he didn't sustain it for the full year. You look for Carlos Alcaraz right now, he's at 31.1%, still second on the ATP tour. But it's just like, if he can do that at 19 years old, What's he going to look like at 26? What's he going to look like at 27? Or my favorite statistic of the year, Iga Sviantek has broken serve over 50% of the time for 10 calendar months. Now, after San Diego, she's down to literally 50.0%. But I have gone through and I can find only one player who has broken serve over 50% of the time for an entire season. And that's 2020 Simona Halep. And 2020 was not a full year. And so, you know, and Simona Halep is a generational returner on the WTA tour. And so again, you see right away, Alcaraz, Sviantex, they're of the world. They're putting up generational type numbers. And I think that's the sort of thing where, again, I test wise, we all know Iga is going to be good. We all know Carlos is going to be good. But now if you go into an argument and you have some stats to back up why you think they're good, why not only the eyes, but the numbers indicate these are two generational type talents, 
how does that not make you a better analyst? Like, I, I just think that, and, and it's publicly available. I guess that's my frustration is it's just like, all you got to do, tennisabstract.com, click stats leaderboard. It's all there for you. All right. So I'm not going to disagree, but I'm going to just do a counter argument because I hear that argument in my cricket space a lot. Yeah, please. This is good. Every, no, everything you said is, is spot on. But if you, if you have like a casual fan, like we all have, we live in the States, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of people follow other sports and tennis is just a Wimbledon US Open thing. So if a casual audience is coming and they are not the money ball crowd who just stick to the old cliche uh, terms like, you know, clutch moments, pressure points, <laughs> they don't sure. want to be bothered by, look, look, my late father who got me, into me, got me into tennis was a diehard Federer fan or a Lendl fan, but he didn't understand the nuance he never played. So and he understood English English well, but if he's listening, the the Jeff Sackman you know stats, he may tune out. He may you know not get into it because the language he understands is Bud Collins' language. So you know from the broadcasting point of view, that's what I'm saying. Even the stats is the right way, but is there a fear of losing an audience if it becomes too stat oriented? Of course, the the part audience that you and I and everyone have no they want more they if you're already listening to you and me you know your tennis but then you know our responsibility is also to someone who is deciding to watch tennis on a Sunday afternoon over say college hoops and that person may not be looking for egas you know second serve percentage or like whereas Medvedev's toss going all the time on the ad and you know on the ad side code in the second serve you know those things are important but that's where I think I've taken a seat back because uh, I don't know, if, is it that sexy to sell stats to someone who is not as dialed into tennis as you and I are? So that's where I would say, yes. Like, that's where you have to sell it. And it's actually twofold. I think my favorite quote I've ever gotten from anyone on our Cracked Interviews podcast, Ty Tucker, Ohio State men's tennis coach, who is not the happiest with me right now, but that's a story for a different time. Um, he came on our show. And I was asking him, how do you make tennis more commercially appealing to people my age or a younger generation of fans? And he goes, it's his basic, it's a couple of things. It's like, A, you talk about sex appeal. Like, these players are jack. If you go to an event, there's not an ounce of fat on any of these top 100 players in the world. And he goes, the first thing I would do is mandate everyone wears a size smaller clothing. Because we've got these baggy shirts and baggy shorts, and we want to make it sexy. Let's show off we've got real athletes out on court. And I actually think that is a little bit overdone, a little bit hyperbolic, but I understand the sentiment of what he's saying. Part two of that is, why is it appealing for me to watch Francisco Sarundolo in the Miami Open semifinals? Why should I give a single blank about Francisco Sarundolo this year. He didn't make a quarterfinal of a slam. He's like 30-ish in the world, whatever. Well, I could say Sarundolo's fourth in break percentage. Fourth. Like, I think it's your job as the commentator to make that number sexy, to use those numbers to make these players enticing to watch. Or like, you know, again, I'm trying to think. Like a Jensen Brooksby. Jensen Brooksby broke the numbers last season. He was doing things where the numbers were like, we don't know. Like if, if he keeps this up, he's the greatest of all time. It broke Jeff Sackman's tenant, uh, his ELO ratings. It was just like, we don't know what to do with him anymore. I think that's the sort of thing where as a commentator or as a sports fan more broadly, and you're right. I think we're bad people to ask because we're the most engaged of sports fans. We're looking for that extra bit of info, but inherently, 
I feel like that's the role of the commentator is to provide that extra bit of info where, God forbid, you're getting in an argument now to casual fans. I like Sinner. I like Alcaraz. Well, you know, I heard from Chris Fowler that Carlos Alcaraz is one of five players to rank top 15 in hold and break percentage. And Sinner's one of the eight, but he's top 20 in both hold and break percentage. So statistically, I test wise, Alcaraz clearly has the advantage. No, man, like you're going to go against a ginger like that, that. That's how debate is had, right? Is you throw in some statistics, you throw in some non-quantifiables. Everyone comes out of it having fun. I just think the statistics element in tennis is so often left out in those arguments where you're just like, no, his forehand is better. And you're like, no, his forehand's not better. And you're like, well, do we have a stat to prove the answer? And Nowadays, the answer to that question is yes, that stat does exist. No, I think, again, spot on, no, yeah. no counter argument. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir. I apologize. I appreciate no, no, playing but I, devil's I think, advocate. No, no, I think but, uh, our, our larger audience may also be of different you know, mindsets. So uh, I'll conclude this with my thoughts. You don't have to agree. I think for tennis podcasting and the tennis channel network, I think the coverage could be very tennis centric, but when you're talking about NBC and ESPN reaching out the major finals and semis, I'm still okay to have a bit of both, bit of, you know, the narrative based, you know, old cliches, and then you can mix up the good old stats in there. But yeah, there is no excuse for not being aware of where this, this girl or guy played two weeks ago. I think that's something it's so it's one click available away and these guys should be better prepared. And the, the great caller with the baggy stuff, because I was watching, Highlights on tennis TV uh, a few nights ago, Marat Safin and Andy Roddick at the 2004 Masters Cup, and they both were wearing these baggy shorts. Looks like they bought like Opelka's clothes or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's a great, great match. The only good, only bad thing is Safin didn't win. Sorry if you're a Roddick fan, but I think he lost two tie breaks. But a great, great match. So, uh, so let's talk about the stats, how we use while interviewing. Uh, a pro from the ATP or WTA. What kind of stats are available for college if when you do your college interviews? So if there are no stats, how do you how do you construct your conversation before going into a big interview? That's the issue is there's not really stats available. Now, again, I'm fortunate. I like to go through the ringer of I will text the head coach. I will text a couple teammates to be like, hey, give me some juice. I need a funny question that's going to throw him off guard. But it goes full circle. The key is watch their matches. Tennis is very much a, oh, I see you like. So for Ben Shelton, for instance, I had to ask him about the ad side slice wide serve because talking to a Tennessee player who played him throughout the course of the year. Ooh, did I just reveal the identity? It's, you know, Ben's not listening to minute, whatever we are in. So I'm going to be okay there. Um, I asked a Tennessee player, you know, what's it like to face that out wide serve? And the player said, well, Alex, to be frank, you're effed. And he used color, more colorful term than that. He said, you're just effed because if he lands it, now he's got a first forehand and you're just not winning. If he has that first forehand, you just can accept you've lost the point if he lands the out wide. And so, you know, from that, you ask Ben, that was his description. Do you feel as though that's your weapon or you watch Ben play and you can tell he is never rushed in anything that he does. If anything, he is moving faster then the point itself is developing. And that's something you can only see by watching his matches, by taking the time to actually break down the film yourself. And so you have the ability to ask him those sorts of questions. My key to to get into the, the preparation, 
if they have a tennis abstract page, I will obviously rip through it. I will go through their ITF page as well, just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Want to check out for me, the two big events, if particularly if they're American, how did you do at Kalamazoo or if for the women, how did you do at San Diego? The two national championships that offer wild cards to the U S open for the top juniors every year. You know, what is your track record of success? Are you a late bloomer? You mentioned it earlier. It's just looking through their history. It doesn't take that long to go through the numbers and kind of see, okay, this might be a result I like to remember, or this is something I would like to bring up. I will also say I don't have the worst memory in the world, thankfully, for now, although I had some senile moments recently, Sakib. If you want a quick tangent, it was just so my parents have lived in the same house for 10 years. And I, I think I have undiagnosed OCD, which not, not in the bad way, but I'm definitely a creature of habit. Um, and just forever, I had used the right handle faucet on the sink at a, in one of our bathrooms. I just always use the right handle. And that's the bathroom we have upstairs. And so I was like, okay, um, I guess I just don't get warm water in this sink for 10 years in this house. Two months ago, I came home. And for some reason, I used the left handle for the first time. I was like, oh, my God, warm. I was like, you are so stupid, Alex. I was like, this has to be one of the three stupidest moments of your life. So the brain is slowing down. Um, But you remember the Colette Lewis interview that they did because she wrote about it. Or you remember the Kalamazoo final that they played because she wrote about it. And again, all this information, to your point, is available. That's always the key. Spend at least an hour dipping down, send at least five texts to people in their circle. Um, and then it watch at least, you know, 30 minutes of film on them because I'm always looking for an excuse to watch tennis. And, you know, we've been fortunate to interview some very cool players, so it's not the worst to watch them play. Sure. Okay. Same question for ATP now, since you've pretty much talked to everyone, you even talked to Ernest Gulbis. I'm so bad. jealous. How do you even talk to Gulbis? I've been chasing him. Uh, we got lucky. Challenger tour. Yeah, yeah, we worked a. Uh, first of all, Ernest Golbus and I are friends. Like, I'm pretty sure we had a. Fr- I like. I looked at him after. I was like, dude, are we? I think we like each other. And he was Joey is laughing. He's like, yeah, you're not the worst. Um, and I was like, that's that's compliments from Ernest Golbus. I will also say, my older brother and his friends played tennis. And you know, I always say oh, really? my sense of humor is built around trying to make my older brother and his friends laugh. And they were all about the fear hand, you know, the fear hand. I can hear one of my brother's friends saying it out loud. And to have the chance to work an EXO event with Golbus being there, I was like, hey, if I don't interview you and get a photo with you, my brother will disown me. I was like, I, I have to do this one for him. Um, you just get very lucky. Us, you know, your brother and me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm that one big, was for you then, Saka. Big Golbus fan. Yeah. And, I, and I was ahead. watching him play the 2019 U.S. Open Qualies. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, like my wife calls this like kind of stockish. So I knew like Gilbus was looking at this guy. So I didn't know if he was his coach or friend. And usually I have like walked up to people and landed like a podcast number or like an email. Like I got Jose Higuera, same trip. Yeah. But I just, you know, I went to the Gilbus camp and say, hey, are you his coach? You know, I'm his friend. And instead of giving my card, I just like froze. I didn't say anything. And I wanted the Gilbus interview <laughs> so bad. And then, you know, that was my closest moment. But yeah, I saw him on your list. It's about, you've, you've talked to everyone. So anyway, there wasn't a question there. So my question is, when you talk to like the Seb Kordas and Nakashimas and, you know, like all the ATP players, do they respond better when you start bringing up stats in the conversation? Say, if you've booked 20 minutes with them, do you, fence, do you feel the conversation automatically become 30 minutes because they're enjoying the stats part that you were prepared 
you came prepared for that. You see there's like stats being a factor with ATP players. Yeah, I try to work a healthy balance. So the first question is never going to be too stat centric. The first one is going to be something I learned about them in my research that will keep, will get them relaxed and make them think, okay, this guy at least did his homework. The second question is usually something statistic centric because that continues the theme of, oh, I'm not getting asked the generic, oh, you know, this is your third time playing here in Cincinnati. How do you like the city? It's like, to be honest, I don't give a a hoot um, what your thoughts are about the city. And you don't want to talk about your thoughts about the city. You want someone to actually clearly watch your performance, watch your match, or has watched you play consistently. And this is where it helps to now have a five-year and really decade long, because even before the podcast, I always say the Tommy, this class of young Americans I'm rising with like, this is my class. This is the group. I monitored all the ITF events when they were, you know, I have a theory that 12 year old Stefan Kozlov is the best 12 year old to ever exist in the history of humanity at tennis. And I think my, I think the numbers would back that up. Um, But I've been on this journey with them for a decade. And now we've had the chance to interview them a couple of times. So I will throw in another story if you'll allow me. The ATP liaison in Cincinnati, I had never met before. And he was a little bit hesitant to offer me a full platform for a one-on-one interview. Cause he's like, I don't know you. And you know, sometimes uh, I don't want to throw any names <laughs> under, the, uh, under the belt, but uh, you know, he's just kind of like, you know, you want to be, and I understand why he's reserved because you don't want to offer a 10 minute interview to some fluff and it's just going to be a disaster. But very first one-on-one interview we have, former NCAA singles champion, friend of the program, Marcos Giron, walks outside for the interview. And he goes, Gruskin, what's up, my man? And he daps me up and gives me a hug. And Josh is like, wait, like, who are you? Like, what, is, I, I, what am I getting into? So like, okay, so you do know them. So there is at least some sort of credibility established. But that's the key is like, we interviewed Borna Chorich later in that day. We actually got him after his first round victory in Cincinnati. Obviously, he goes on to win the event. That interview ended up doing a little bit better than we anticipated. Um, but just to ask him of like, hey, I'm looking at your forehand. And having watched your forehand since you were making junior slam finals, like it looks a little smaller now. It looks like you condensed that backswing, that you're trying to catch the ball a little bit earlier. Is that a fair observation you know, that's all Chorch has ever wanted to be asked his whole life is like, oh, my God, like, yeah, I, I've been playing with my forehand since 2017. And I appreciate you noticing this little thing that I did because we did change up the backswing or, you know, for Ben Shelton, it's not asking, him, you know, a running gig, a gag I have with him whenever we have him on the show is at some point in the interview, I'll go, oh, by the way, did you know, like your dad was your coach at Florida? Like that was probably pretty cool, right? Because he's not going to go through a single interview without being asked what's it like to have your dad as your head coach? And so I try to do it in the most facetious way possible, just a little jab. It's just about treating them like human beings. And I think you're selling yourself short. I think I've been around a few, you know, tennis analysts. And no, I think that's, you're selling yourself short there, that if you are noticing someone's backswing has condensed, uh, believe me, this is the stuff players will eat up. And it's not like you're trying to, you know, flatter them. This is a very astute observation because, a lot of stuff gets lost because everybody goes, does a score check when this guy played last, when this girl played last. And you know, like, that's a basic stat. But then if you have more background in someone's you know, evolution, 
it's going to set up a good interview. Like I'm an oldie, you know, like when I have worked for in the show, I, I don't bring up his doubles win. I had, I bring up the 88 fourth round versus Lendl when he had exactly. match points. Yeah. So, you know, th- those things matter. And then you give him the floor, he goes six minutes on it. And then the generational listeners are enjoying that new play, you know. So it's I also think- a respect for history. It's like, I, if we're talking to a college tennis person, Yes, I can talk about all the recent stuff, but you want to go back to the 80s? I can do 10 minutes on Paul Harhus if you need me to. Or like, do you want me to talk about UCLA's Buff Faro and the run he had to the 87 quarters? Like, I'm a nerd. I've doubled down now. I've fully accepted, embraced it. I grew up with a coach named Ed Nagel, whose doubles partner in college was Malvia Washington. And let's just say, and you can go listen to the Mal Washington interview where I ask him about this. They win the Big Ten championships his freshman year. Let's just say he celebrated particularly hard that night of the championship. And so I ask him, hey, tell me about dinner at Denny's after the 1988 Big Ten championships. And when I say he was like, no human alive is supposed to know about that. Why do you know about that? And it was like, well, my coach was with you. I I grew up on stories like that. It helps to... I mean, again, it helps to actually care about those sort of things and kind of find them funny. I always say, you know, again, my, my brother likes to joke around. He says two things. He goes, you have the perfect face for podcasting, to which I flick him off. And he goes, no, you probably do know more about college tennis or some of these things than anyone else in the world. And it's just like, I think we owe it to our listeners to, to do that because you have trusted us with this platform. You have trusted us with your time. Now it's on us not to waste it and to teach you something new every time. But yeah, I do I appreciate the compliments, of course, my friend. No, I mean, this is, this is, this is a great value because I think you're the most, how do I say it? You're the most inside outsider, you know, like <laughs> you, you've come in and, you know, you've done your homework. You, you remember your stories, your anecdotes, you've watched enough. So let's spend the last segment of this podcast. It has been very free flowing. I've enjoyed it about the crew of American male players that you said, you know, they grew up on your watch. It's a big selection, you know, from since the Andy Roddick days, you know, they were supposed to be uh, taking over from the Sampras Agassi Chang years, you know, Roddick was a world-class player, but then Federer happened and then we all know. But now there are a lot of Americans in the top 100. Uh, who, who is the guy out of this lot that has been, I told you so story to your friends and now he's <laughs> finally coming of age. It could be more than one name. Share with the listeners here. Well, I put all of my bar mitzvah money in Stefan Kozlov's stock. And I'm not going to say it's the Bitcoin of stocks because Kozlov's been floating around number 100 in the world. And he's a dear friend of the show. And I still believe in his upside. Kozlov was Medvedev before Medvedev. Let me just say, and all of my friends who have known me for a decade plus in the tennis world, they'll throw in a, a rib about Kozlov or some take I've had about him over the years. God, who was I right about? I would just say total. It was just like, hmm, I have a, whatever. You know what? I'll reveal this. There's a group chat I'm in. It's myself, David Kane, Ben Rothenberg, and it's called I Was Right, You Were Wrong, where we just fire off takes we were right about or you were wrong about. And I like to think this is just one of those things where it was more about the generation of players than any individual. You could watch this group going back to the 20. I think it was either 14 or 15. I'm pretty sure it's the 2015 junior season where Tommy beats Taylor in the junior French final. 
Riley beats Michael Emer in the junior Wimbledon final. Then Taylor beats Tommy in the junior U.S. Open final, goes on in the next two weeks to make a couple of challenger finals, wins some titles that next February he wins the Memphis or makes that run in Memphis. I don't remember if he won the title or lost in the final, but like this generation as a whole, dating back to even Kozlov as a 12-year-old competing in the Easter Bowl 18s and making quarterfinals-type run. Francis Tiafo beating Kozlov in the Junior Orange Bowl final, an incredible match. Beating him in a five-set thriller, the best match in the boys' 18s Kalamazoo history. You have, the year before that, Noah Rubin winning Junior Wimbledon, winning Kalamazoo, and kind of quickly ascending into the top 250. This generation has been really good for a really long time compared to their peers. And did I think Taylor Fritz was going to be the first to win a Masters 1000 of the group? Maybe. Like, certainly he was always the guy where you're just of the group. You're like, well, his weapon, like this kid knows how to play tennis. And I don't know how good of an athlete he is, but I would kill for his shoulder. The serve is the most gifted, like easy thing I've seen. And he's had that toss and he's had that delivery since he was 12 years old. Like you knew he was going to be good. Riley's the the best moving seven foot athlete I've ever seen on a tennis court. We're just like, you shouldn't be this fluid for a guy your size. All due respect to Isner, you know, he doesn't have Isner serve, but he's way better at the rest of the tennis stuff from the baseline. And you saw that at 16, 17 years old, you know, Tommy, obviously smoothest athlete in the world. Michael Moe, smoothest athlete in the world. Jared Donaldson was flying through the ranks top 50 uh, you know where right is he right 50. now is he... he's injured he's retired unfortunately and so he's actually now i think the volunteer coach at penn where he's just an undergrad student university of pennsylvania now but again this group of guys had success from the start and if you like me read colette lewis religiously piece after piece she talked about this group is going to break through. This is the group where you're just having so many bites at the apple that some of these guys are going to get top 100. And, you know, then you added JJ Wolf into the mix, who's a little bit of a later bloomer, but made a final of Kalamazoo, was the number one player in the college tennis universe. He's now top 75 in the world. I think we all think it's when, not if, Ben Shelton becomes a top 100 player in the world. And then you've got Zach Svida, a two-time Kalamazoo champion, you know, one of like five guys you can say that about since the 1950s. And he would have been a three-time champion if Cal- if Kalamazoo didn't get canceled because of the pandemic in 2020. And it's just like, there are so many different names. Emilio Nava, got to give him a shout out. He's been exceptional as well. There are a ton of good guys, even currently in college. You brought it up. And again, to tie in the statistics here, every, every first in American men's tennis this year has been first since the 1990s. You know, most guys into the Wimbledon third round, fourth round since the 1990s, most guys in the third round of the U S open since the 1990s, there are nine top 50 Americans, 18% of the top 50 right now, American men haven't seen that since the 1990s and the Chang Agassi courier, you know, you get an anacone popping in or a, Chris Woodruff popping in in that, you know, Todd Martins of the world, Malavia Washington. Do we have a blue chipper? I'm not ready to definitively Mm. say yes, although I want to ask you about that. Um, Do you think there's a blue chipper amongst this group? That said, there are about 12 guys. You know, 
Are we I, calling I them all same group? Like, say, Fritz and Corda are the same group? They're what, separated well, by four years? No, you're right. Years? There's a generational gap between those no, two. No, I'm but, asking, I mean, how do we divide the generation? They're all, like, within four or five years of each. Yeah, so I then, like to do – there's a hard delineation between that. I call them the Boca crew because they were at USTA Boca in Everett prior to uh, the USTA National Campus in Orlando being built. I think there's a, they're in a fantasy football league as well, and I'm desperate to get access into this league. I'm not quite there yet. But Tommy, Taylor, Riley, Francis, Stefan, Michael Moe, you know, Ernesto Escobedo, those 96 to 98ers, J.J. Wolf, they're a crew. You know, they're a cohort. They've been competing against each other forever. To add to that depth, you're absolutely right. We've seen the emergence, three names in particular, Korda, Brooksby, Nakashima. Um, that's, you know, that's a separate, I call them next gen 2.0. That's I, I believe in those three more. So that's going to be my question. You'll take, if I asked you those three, and I'll throw Ben Shelton in that group as well, because he just turned 20 years old, versus that other pe- group, you know, peer group of five with Tiafo, Fritz, Paul, Opelka. Which group are you taking over the next decade? Okay, so I'm going to dance, tap dance around because I don't think it's a straight way to answer this. I'm going to use Alcaraz as the outlier. Okay. I think we've seen Vavrinka win majors after 27. And I still think Medvedev, Zverev, if they stay healthy and they find their game, they can still contend and have looks besides Alcaraz. I don't think Sinner is there quite yet. So use the same baseline. I didn't. If someone told me last year that Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafo will be looking at top 10 and will look even more dangerous, I wouldn't have believed that. I think Tiafo has great movement, but I don't think he had this kind of a ceiling. I had a lot of expectations of him in 2018, 2019, but there was a lull where he was between 60 and 30. Now, what I saw at the US Open, I think the ceiling has definitely gotten higher. Taylor Fritz may be the best player of that cohort, but I like Francis's movement. I think Fritz for a big guy doesn't have the Zverev-Medvedev movement. I think you need to have that movement with explosive movement. And then, okay, I'm going to bring in Korda. For 6-5, the guy never looks out of, out of balance, absorbs power from the baseline, and then without hitting the reset button, he resets the rally. And I think that is what the Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, the 6-1, 6-2 guys did. The movement is exceptional. Again, I haven't even played tennis at I haven't even warmed up with college guys, so I'm standing way behind in the line. But that's my two cents. Uh, Fritz has a weapon. I think it's more of a throwback player, one-two punch. He needs. He would need some help to win a major that someone has to take Djokovic Nadal out because he's gone against them twice in the last two years when they both were severely compromised with injuries and he couldn't put them away. I mean, mightier men have fallen. I'm not going to hold it sure. against him. But I think it's a movement, I think, yeah. to me. I think weapons-wise, Fritz can take the racket out of your hands. Francis has the movement, but I need to see one more run like the U.S. Open. I think he definitely moves better than Fritz. And he can recover from a deficit of a rally position and still hit a neutral ball. I think Fritz likes to still control the rally from his racket. If he's not in the controlling point, I, I look, it's a fine line, you know, to be top 10 and then top four. I want to see how Fritz does the next year. I'm not saying I'm not a believer. But, you know, uh, is he the answer? I don't know. But I think Korda, Nakashima, and uh, Brooksby, I see a lot of upside there. Yeah. To the Tiafo point, you look for Francis. What's the big thing that's changed? It's that he just has, and sorry to keep 
beating down on this metaphor, the bites at the apple. It's just you look for him 2017, 11 and 12 in first matches of events. He was 15 and 10 in 2018, 12 and 13 in 2019. These past two years, he's gone 18 and 7, and this year 14 and 6 in first matches at events. You know, Wise Man once said, you can't win a tournament in round one, but you can definitely lose it. And to Francis's credit, he hasn't lost it. Like he is beating the guys he's supposed to beat and getting through and giving himself opportunities to your point to play the Rublevs of the world, the Nadals of the world, the Alcarazes or sinners of the world at these big events. And, you know, he's always been a, a primetime performer. And I think we saw that in spades at the U S open where I've never seen his forehand look as steady as it looked during those two weeks in New York. The first serve was an absolute weapon. And then talk about a guy who doesn't have an ounce of fat on his body. Just again, pound for pound might be your strongest and best athlete on the ATP tour right now. But, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Corda because every time I have this conversation, I'm going to bring up Sebastian Corda. I think if you were building your ideal 2022 tennis player in a lab, it would look a lot like Corda. Six foot five, but not compromised from a movement standpoint. Except, you know, can create as well as anyone with his first forehand. That said, and this is one of my hot takes, I think it goes in terms of when they're at their best. Djokovic's backhand one, Zverev's backhand two, Korda's backhand three. That would be my power rankings. I know people, I always get yelled at. No, like, I think well, don't forget Medvedev in that conversation. I'm not saying Medvedev's not in that conversation. He very much could have a claim to three. For me, I'm taking the drive of Corda because when he drives his shoulders through the ball in the backhand wing, you lose. Like it's just that simple. He is one of the three players who can hit through the court, cross court with his backhand and create openings for himself. And it's just like, I'm sorry. Yes, Medvedev can do it. But it's Vera, you know, it's Djokovic, it's Zverev, it's Korda on that list. And then watching him play last week in, I forget if he, I'm pretty sure he was in Hyon and not Florence. Um, just watching, there was more, there was just a little more chutzpah behind that forehand. Like it felt like he was getting outside the ball a little bit more, that there was just a little bit more sting. He's always been a competent volleyer who he may not be exceptional with his hands, but he knows where to go and what to do when he's at the net. And honestly, yeah, Yeah. that's the battle. And then it's just like the family as well. I think in modern sports, it really does help to come from a family where your dad was and mom were successful pros, where your sisters are two of the five best golfers in the world as well. It's like court has got all the pieces. If you were to make the ideal tennis player in a lab, he would be one I would actually take Ben Shelton, too, because you know what every tennis coach likes to hear? Two words, Sakib. Big lefty. And that's what Shelton is. It's just like, all right, I'll take that frame and what you can already do. And you just turned 20 years old, and we have a decade to mold this clay into something special. I'll take him as well. Um, And so I, I suppose that means I'll take the younger over the older generation. But it's funny. I would put them one and two. I'd probably then have four of the current, like Tommy Paul is just going to be in the top 35 for the rest of his career. Something clicked athletically. 
it just works. It's just like, that's again, it's, He's it's smooth. The, no, yeah. He it's smooth. so smooth. It's just like, how great is he going to be soccer about a country club from like 40 to 60 years old, just like on green clay, living life backwards hat on at all times. Like that's where his game belongs. It's just so sure. easy. Um, it's a really good group of Americans. Now, if you're asking me, will we win? And you're not, but I'm going to ask you it. So I'll answer the question first. Do I think this group wins a slam by 2030? Anyone in this group? <laughs> I'd say yes. It used to be Opelka 2026 Wimbledon. I now rescind that. I'm going to take Sebi Korda to win something. But more than anything else, there are going to be a lot of quarterfinals, a lot of semifinals, a lot of bites at the apple. And that's just not a position American men's tennis has been in in my lifetime. No, I'm going to second you that. If you were sitting in a studio, I would shake your hands. I'm a big Corda fan. <laughs> and uh, I would encourage you and some of my listeners who will laugh at me and say, there you go, the old guy goes again. No one has asked this to Seb Corda yet. If I ever get to interview him or if you get to interview him, I think there's a lot of shades of Marat Safin. I see the effortless kick serve. I see the forehand technique, especially when he comes underneath the ball. And then I see the use of left elbow in the backhand. And the cross-court backhand is very Safin-esque, even though Kokinakis and Fuchovic have literally copied their game on Safin, but Korda plays like Safin. And I want to ask him, he's not too young to have seen Safin. He's 22. Safin called it quits in 2009. So again, and you know, Korda has European roots. He's probably born in America, but I think he is one American who plays the backhand like Europeans. Mm-hmm. It's very controversial to say that. But I believe in Korda like you do. And I was having this discussion with my good friend Anand, who started this podcast with me many moons ago. He asked me, what's wrong with Korda? I said, I don't have the eye to tell what's wrong. I think he's 6'5", and he weighs 175 LBs. Sasha Zverev is 6'6", and he's 198. So I'm sure uh, Goldfine, Agassi, and whoever the think tank is, they can slowly build 15 to 20 pounds of more muscle to have you know stroke production repeatability. And... I think ground strokes wise, if he can develop a 130 plus kick serve, he's as good as your hybrid player. And he's just more talented than Daniil Medvedev and Sasha Zverev, in my view. And I'm, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. He's 22. He's trending slow because we are, you know what? We want to talk about who's the next Alcaraz, who's the next center. Hold on. Alcaraz is still the outlier. I think people are going to prove themselves 23, 24 year old at majors. I, I don't think we've arrived there. Alcaraz is not the second coming of Rafa Nadal. He's just one Carlos Alcaraz who's just like there. I don't think we, the sport's going to get younger anytime soon. But what do I know? I only do a podcast that has few hundred listeners. <laughs> well, for the record, I'm reserving the right, if you'll allow me, to bring you onto our podcast in December because I've already scheduled a pod where I'm going to speak exclusively of why and it's a new running – you do a daily show, you're going to have some running gags sure. and some running segments. We do Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. You know, everyone focuses on the GOAT debate. We don't say who is the GOAT. We say who hasn't been eliminated from the greatest of all time discussion. For example, I think we can say after this year, respectfully, that Neil Medvedev is not going to be the greatest of all time. I don't think we can eliminate Carlos Alcaraz or Iga Sviantec from that conversation yet. I'm not saying they're the greatest of all time. I'm just saying they're not definitively not the greatest of all time yet. And so, you know, again, we try to have fun there. Um, Is Osaka out of that list? 
a great question, Zach. I'll have to bring the committee together. It was even a greater question, say, 15 months ago. Yeah, now and I that's why I think the answer is yes, she has been eliminated. I think Sviantec has supplanted her, and you're just like, it hasn't clicked at Wimbledon the way you were really hoping it might for Osaka. We just haven't seen her play many grass court matches, to be honest. And so I don't think she's going to earn that greatest of all time status. I will say another one we do is capital B and lowercase b breakout stars. So, for instance, I think we would agree Iga Sviantek is an uppercase, you know, and Carlos Alcaraz are capital B breakout stars this year. I think some lowercase b breakout stars would be like an Anastasia Potapova or like a Brandon Nakashima. Some of these players who have now just established themselves, we're young, we're top 60, and we're not going anywhere for the next decade. That's a lowercase b. I think Sebi Korda's got capital case B, you know, capital case B breakout star written all over him in 2023. It's just, you're absolutely right. On paper, there's so much to like. And when I do send you the Sebi Korda interview, you'll hear a tidbit from him in it. And by the way, you hear his voice. It's a deep bass. And you're just like, oh yeah, you're an athlete. You're like, that testosterone's not going to be a problem for you moving forward. Um, he He told me, he just started lifting weights this season. And so you talk about his frame and he's a guy who's dealt with a ton of different injuries, back injuries in particular early in his career when he was growing. And the last thing you want to do and credit to his team for making this decision, we're not playing with weights. We're not doing any of that stuff until we know the growth plates are healed. We're good to go. Your body is ready to start putting on muscle. How much is Agassi involved in his, uh, I, I don't think tremendously. I think he is involved. I think he's part of the big picture discussions. And I do think part of that big picture was discussion this year was, okay, you know what? You're ready to start lifting. Your body is held up for 50 weeks or 40 weeks, whatever the season length is. And like, to your point, what happens when he can squat 225 pounds? What happens when he's not just coasting off of his, his athleticism, but he turns into a grown man body? Like, that's a scary proposition for the rest of the ATP tour because we've already seen the ceiling. You know, he beats Alcaraz on clay earlier this season. He plays Rafa extraordinarily tough. I believe that was at Indian Wells probably should have won that match, even though he didn't. Um, Yeah. I I think he's the guy, whenever we have this discussion, I just, I have to put Corda on the list because his highest level you feel like is is a combination of sort of all the things you like from everyone else. Yeah, I think he's he's not far behind uh, highest level of center. Yeah. And if, if I can't they, they both one, put it together. One statistic here, because we talked about how you can incorporate statistics to legitimize some of your observations. Seppi Korda here this season, currently according to the tennis abstract stats leaderboard, ranks 11th amongst top 50 players in break percentage. He's breaking serve 27.1% of the time. You look at him from a hold percentage standpoint. As of right now, Sebi Korda currently, and I don't want to get this number incorrect, I believe he's currently 37th amongst top 50 players. That doesn't feel right. Like, you're telling me five years from now, Sebi Korda is still only going to hold serve 37th most amongst top 50 players? I'm calling BS. You're just like, that is the lowest hanging fruit for statistical improvement. And that's why, again, we'll go over this in December. But that's why I'm just like, I see where the improvement's going to come. No, yeah, I think, and then what's the other word, right? His, he has a very high floor. You know, once yes. he puts it all together, you know, there's some guys, I don't want to take names, they have a basement, you know, and then there's up and down. <laughs> I'll you know, say but, it's Sasha Bublik, where you're just like, yeah, when you look great, it's great, but it can also be awful. Exactly. 
All right. So before I wrap this up, I know uh, I've kept you close to 90 minutes. Uh, what's your best interview been? So if anyone who doesn't know of your podcast, which is hard to believe, but if maybe 10 people that know me and don't know you, what's your best interview from ATP or WTA player that you want to endorse tennis with an accent listeners where then they may come check it out it's as an entry point. Well, let me ask you, your favorite are you, interview. Are you like me where you remember the bad interviews more than the good ones? I usually have bad ones. So yeah, I do remember <laughs> bad interviews. Agree to disagree, my friend. But like, I could tell you right now, the interview I regret the most in life, which I'm going to say it because we've had him since and I told him about this on the show. We had Riley Opelka back in our early days. I want to say this was winter 2018, early, like January, February side of winter. And he was in an airport parking lot. And it was just like very clear he was about to catch a flight. He was like, yeah, I got 20 minutes. Let's do this. And I was like, dude, you could have just said no. Like it, it would have been better had you just said no to this interview as opposed to us doing the interview because we both accomplished nothing out of that 20 minutes. Like what a waste of time. We then subsequently had him and he was wonderful when we had him down in Miami. Um, best interview we've done. Most memorable inside a hot tub with Stevie Johnson. That was a fun one on our YouTube channel. Stevie's always a great guest as well. Embarrassed me once I hadn't gotten a haircut and it was a press conference and he goes, Gruskin haircut immediately. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I was like, Stevie, come on. Um, Our best interview. I would say Ben Shelton of late. If you're going to go listen to one, go listen to the Ben interview. He's extraordinarily candid. We, you know, I refer to him as a friend because he has been so kind to us over the years. And he's one of the hottest things since sliced bread. So you want to go hear from him. Women's side, Ellen Perez, who top 10 doubles player in the world now, outspoken member and trying to build tennis and into the future and just build the sport and make it bigger and continue to grow things. I loved her perspective and she's kind of that perfect intersection of pros, college, high level juniors, and has dealt with some things in her life. Um, That was a very fun interview. And then again, if you're ready to dive into college tennis, if you want to know, Hey, 12 of the top 100 singles players, 34 of the top 100 doubles players on the men's side, two recent slam finalists and Danielle Collins, Jennifer Brady, they're all coming from college tennis. Um, maybe I should start getting into it. We're the place for you. We've got every coach you're looking for. If you went to school somewhere, we've probably talked to someone on that team. Again, dip your toes in, come join us. It's going to be a very fun college tennis season. Yeah. But you can hear it from me. There isn't someone who they haven't talked to. So (laughs) it's incredible. Not true. Novak Djokovic keeps ducking me for some reason. Come on, Novak, come on the show. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I'll also share one small incident before I let you go. Same thing. It wasn't, the actual podcast. I came early from work. I had to do an interview with Darren Cahill. I was very excited and nervous. And he stopped replying to me on WhatsApp and he had given me a time and he didn't show up. So I'm texting my wife from the other room that should I text him again? And my, my wife said, yes. And I didn't realize I was texting to Darren. Oh no. <laughs> I, was, I was saying he hasn't replied. And I'm saying, oh man, can I take this text back? But then 30 minutes later, he said, I was in an ESPN meeting. Can we start in 10 minutes? <laughs> And I was so embarrassed, but he was cool. We recorded for 70 plus minutes. That's great. That was one of my best podcasts. And the other one I enjoyed was for with Robin Haas, uh, the yeah. Dutch player. But yeah. I, had a bi- I, had a, I had a coach who will remain nameless and schoolless who texted me as if I was his wife. He was like, honey, did you remember to pick up the kids? Also, don't forget this is dinner <laughs> and we're doing this. And I was like, as a coach, I'm flattered, but you know, not me. I also... 
there's this player named Alexa Graham, top 300 player in the world now on the women's side, was a fantastic standout All-American at UNC. And it was for her the, for the senior banquet, her final year at North Carolina. And the head coach texted a group chat to all the seniors being like, hey, just so you know, because you're seniors, your parents are invited, all these different things. Like, we're paying for you X, Y, Z, like, just so you know. And instead of texting Alexa Graham, he texted Alex Gruskin because obviously they're next to each other in their phone. (laughs) And so I go, coach, like, I know I've been very kind to UNC over the years. Am I actually invited to this? Like, I think you meant Alexa and not me. And all the whole team was like, no, like he meant Gruskin. You got to come now. And he was like, I did not meet you, Alex. And so uh, I appreciate always a in a wry text I've sent many in my day as well. And so, yeah, if you're not doing that, you're just not talking to enough people. Sakib. Exactly. And on that note, I think, uh, thank you for your time. This was a great podcast. I got more than what I asked for. You're a great speaker. Uh, guys, he's Alex Kreskin. If you don't know him, go check out his work in a not so distant future. He may be calling a big match on your, <laughs> on your flat screen TV at home. And hopefully we can bring you back, Alex. It was a pleasure. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's do this again at some point. It is my pleasure to be here. You are a great listener, which is an underrated quality of any podcaster. And I mean that in the most sincere regards. I have and will continue to listen to your show. I I try not to listen to too many other tennis podcasts, if you'll indulge me one last take, because I don't like to steal other people's takes. I don't mind if I agree with someone, but if I hear them say it beforehand, then I feel like I stole it from them. Uh that said, I have no problem stealing from you because I have to steal from you. You guys just provide astute analysis, and it's just if you see the game at a high level, you really want to be involved with everything you guys are doing at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, I know you speak with Matt more frequently than I do. I will always read anything off the pen or the fingertips of Matt Zemek and Uh, You guys make the tennis community a better place. So I will always answer the call. And again, I'm locking you in. We'll say roughly December 12th, Sebi Corda, me and you. Absolutely. Let's do this. I love it. Thank you, my friend.